Hello, I'm Adam Leslie and welcome to Cardboard Cinema Club, the podcast in which a guest and I discuss a film that we both love. As with all movie podcasts, there will of course be spoilers, although we'll try and avoid giving them away gratuitously. Today I'm joined by writer, academic and podcaster Dr Adrian Smith to talk about Todd Browning's notorious 1932 comedy drama, Freaks. We used to talk about films a lot. We did, didn't we, back in the day? In those days, it wasn't recorded. It's probably just as well. (laughs) I know, these days we have to record these things and share them. Yeah. (laughs) Back in the early 90s, you could just talk about this with each other and not even care that no one else was listening. Yeah, amazing. (laughs) What what primitive times we lived in. (laughs) Well, tell us a bit about yourself and the sort of things you do to occupy yourself. So I, um, as we record, I'm sitting in a classroom here on the campus of the University of Sussex where I teach film studies and that is quite fun most of the time um, I so I don't know what really to say about myself I guess I'm a writer sort of I just had a book published just before Christmas about the director Norman J. Warren and uh, that book is called Gentleman of Terror so uh, if you like British obscure horror films then he's your man so that's quite exciting he unfortunately Norman died just as we were finally getting the book together and doing the layouts and everything so he didn't see the finished book but we're having an event at the BFI at the end of June to celebrate what would have been his 80th birthday oh, uh, with a film screening and friends and people of Norman people that were in Norman's films will be there and um, so, yeah, so it's been fun to be involved with that. That book has taken me more than 10 years wow. uh, to get done with a, co- I mean, a co-author. I didn't even write the whole thing and it still took forever. Blimey. Um, but yeah, so I like to write about films. And you do um, DVD and Blu-ray inlay blurbs. Yeah, things, quite a few. Or? If you've bought any movies from the British film range of Network in the last few years, then you may have seen one of my essays in there. I've done quite a few of those. And I've done Indicator and Arrow and, uh, you know, that sort of thing. And I'd like to do more. I'm trying to uh, branch out into the world of DVD and Blu-rays a bit more proactively. So, yeah, I just love talking to people about films, basically. Whoever will listen, wherever they will listen. So, yes, like I say, today we're talking about Freaks, uh, which is a a pre-code film from 1932. Can you you give us a quick summary of the premise of Freaks? Um, (laughs) Wow. So it is about a circus who have a freak show as part of their circus, which was in those days pretty common. You would get a travelling circus who would have sort of side shows as well as the main big tent show so you'd have in the big tent you'd have all your acrobats and your horse riding and all the strong man and all that and then there would be other tents to the side of the mark big marquee where you would get the freak show and uh, that would be people who are basically mainly physically deformed in some way or they would get people who would deliberately turn themselves into freaks in some way or or other, um, and they would be on display for the general public. So this film is about that situation and how one of the uh, the freaks, a, a young 
dwarf. He is in love with a beautiful woman who is the fiance of the strong man. I think if I'm getting that right, yes. I get a bit confused with the relationships here. But, but basically, so it's about the sort of the the, the con- because he's also married to another fellow dwarf. So it's about this kind of love triangle and the consequences that come if you cross any of these um, circus freaks who have a very close-knit kind of code. And if you break that code, then you are going to be in serious trouble. In fact, one of the lines we hear at the very top of the film is, uh, offend one and you offend them all. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. uh, that's essentially what the film's about. And we're, we're calling them freaks because that's their job title. But, I mean, obviously you wouldn't call them that these days. They're, they're essentially... No. Uh, disabled people or just unusual looking people that yeah they all knew that the film they were going to be in was called freaks yes um, and many of the performers that's what so makes this one so interesting is many of the performers were genuine uh sideshow attractions and had toured america and they were the world that they were depicting in this film was something they were all very familiar with um and most of them were adults who were knew what they were doing you you could argue that some of them had limited um learning disabilities i think yeah the ability to decide for themselves wasn't really theirs to be had but they you know they're depicted as being happy within that world i mean and obviously and i've read lots of things that people like these guys have said about this community and although they were treated as oddities and freaks they would find a sense of community and belonging and acceptance amongst themselves that they didn't have in the ordinary world so which is why you would end up quite often where you know they would they would band together and they would stay together for years and years and years because they felt accepted which they didn't if they were just out there in the world on their own but obviously times have changed a huge amount since <laughs> yes, this I mean, movie this is 90 years ago but it's only yeah. 90 years ago i mean this is this is the 1930s this is when there were marx brothers films being made and laurel and hardy yep. films being made and things we think of as being quite modern and yeah but also i think i think this film probably helped to speed up the process of the freak show dying out because it depict it showed because what's great is it shows us the inner lives it shows us that these are real people with real concerns and they're not just freaks to be pointed at and and laugh about you know they've got they're real humans you know and for audiences perhaps it was a bit of a wake-up call that they couldn't just go to the circus and point and laugh at these people because they was they were basically just like them and i don't know whether i don't know it's just a theory i suppose but i certainly think that um that perhaps this film and it helped to sort of change the public perception of the circus freak as they were, and the freak show probably, you know, they died out within the next 20 years or so, and perhaps this went some way towards that, I don't know. Yeah, and I think this is the thing that you might say to someone, this is a a film from the 30s about circus freaks, uh, and people might react, oh no, this is going to be the worst thing ever, but actually it's not at all, it's an extremely compassionate film, isn't it? And it's showing them as the the protagonists and the... Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, because it's basically all of the able-bodied guys. They're the ones who are the the villains of the piece, and it's the the sideshow performers are the heroes. They are the sympathetic characters. And Todd Browning, of course, is the director. He uh, grew up in the circus himself, so he his sympathies were very much with those guys because he had friends just like that in his years 
in the circus before becoming a film director. And this wasn't his first circus film either. I mean, he's best known, Todd Browning, everyone thinks of Dracula, which was only the year before this, I think, Mm. uh, 31. But, I mean, he'd made tons of movies, but he'd also made other circus films before this one as well. He, he had a lot of sympathy with the circus and with, with the circus performers. And I think you re- that really comes across in this movie, that they are the characters that we care about. And the, the main woman, she's basically just manipulating this poor, naive dwarf because she wants his inheritance and all this. They're the villains, the... The, the freaks are the nice guys. And this is something that I, I mentioned to you in a message just before we started this, that this is often usually thought of as a horror film. Mm. Uh, and I introduced it here as a comedy drama because mm-hmm. actually other than the very end where they they do turn a woman into a chicken, yeah. other than that, it's not a horror film at all. I think a lot of the the, the perceived horror just comes from audiences reacting to the people on screen and you know the people with disabilities and i think that's that's often where it gets the Mm. the label as being a horror film yeah it's that closing scene in the rain where the the these all these guys they're getting their revenge on is it cleopatra cleopatra and hercules Um, yes yeah so they're going to exact their revenge for what she's done and it's raining and it's muddy and they're all kind of... I mean, it's that bit with um, the... Uh, what's his name? You've got Johnny Eck. And then you've also got Prince Randian, the, the, the living torso. Yes. The man with no arms or legs. And he's squirming through the mud with a blade in his teeth. I can imagine for audiences in 32, that was absolutely horrifying. <laughs> so it's certainly built to... I mean, and the visuals are so much more striking than anything in Dracula, which obviously is supposed to be a horror film. Yes. But that one's relatively tame in comparison so yeah so it's got it's got the reputation primarily i would say based on that final scene and then obviously yeah the the chicken lady as well but the the film posters for freaks they really um they're selling it more as a kind of romantic melodrama as well Mm. the the tagline on the poster is can a full-grown woman truly love a midget and you've got her kissing him whilst the strong man looks on jealous First of all, I would I wonder why the studio ever commissioned it, because they must have read the script and thought, "Oh, this is going to be awkward." But then, of course, I don't know how much we want to talk about it. But when it came out, it caused huge, huge problems, um, and there were stories of people being sick in the cinema. One woman claimed to have a miscarriage watching this movie in its full version, and the studio panicked and then cut half an hour out of it. So even what we've got left is not as strong as it was. No, it's it's essentially an hour and four minutes, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's, it's the current runtime. So it's it, mm. and it's gone. It's gone forever. Sadly, is this something we'll we'll likely never see? Yeah, it's a real tragedy that that there is a script apparently of the original shooting script exists oh, really? in the archive. But I wish they would just publish that. It'd be fascinating to read. But I think you have to go to some archive in Hollywood if you want to read it. But that would be amazing. There are some people who've I've been looking online and there are various blogs where people have read it and talk about some of the differences. But um, Do you think it would have been more of a horror film with, in the full there's version? Certainly, I mean, a lot of it's more just character development because obviously it wasn't just the ending that was horrifying. I think audiences responded quite badly to some of the um, 
just some of the other sequences of the circus performers. But I think that the, there are there was the ending was longer. We see more stuff happen in the ending. It fades out very conspicuously, doesn't it? Yeah. So there was more made of the ending, um, apparently, in the early one. But yeah, we'll never know, sadly. But So although it's not specifically a horror film, it was clearly horrifying in its original version, sadly. And it was banned in, in the UK for 30 years, which is extraordinary, really. It is, by and large, you know, out of the hour pretty much 50 minutes is actually a very tame film really isn't it it is mm. it's lots of little vignettes and comedies not really comedy sketches but they most most of the vignettes are quite humorous and will have a little punchline to them and things like mm-hmm. that and they're, a lot of them are quite sweet really and particularly the stuff involving um the conjoined twins daisy and violet mm. who i believe you were once on television to talk about yeah well they're from brighton you see although um so they were so they're, they're kind of no. There's a biography written about them, and they've still got relatives that live in Brighton, and um, they were born to a. Let me see if I can get this right. There was a pub in Brighton, and one of the girls who worked in the pub she gave birth to these Siamese twins, as they were called then, conjoined twins. The landlady of the pub adopted them, and initially you think, oh, it's nice, a nice thing for her to do because clearly this young girl, she wasn't married, didn't know how to cope. So the landlady took them on, but she immediately put them in the window as a tourist attraction and was selling postcards and photos and making money from them almost immediately. And then eventually, as soon as they were old enough to walk and talk, she was teaching them to dance and play musical instruments and things and then started touring. And that's how they ended up in America and just did the vaudeville circuit for their whole lives, pretty much. Um, Until eventually, they actually, it's a long story, but they eventually sued her because she was kind of controlling and not letting them have any money and ruining their their lives. And they wanted to get out of the vaudeville circuit. And what they were, so they thought, so they sued her and managed to, become independent from from this woman. But of course, they quickly realised that there was nothing else they could really do in terms of career. Um, and it would have to continue being in showbiz, but I guess they could do it a bit more on their terms. And that's when they ended up in, in being in Freaks and they saw it as an opportunity to perhaps pursue a film career, which sadly didn't really work out in the way they would have hoped um, because they had to go back to just touring and playing shows because there was not much else that they could really do or that people would want them to do. And so they only made this film and then they made one other 20 years later, which is this quite tacky exploitation film called Chained for Life, which is is worth seeking out if you're interested. It's quite an extraordinary film. I've seen clips from it, I'm sure. Yeah, it's pretty depressing. There's an amazing dream sequence in Chained for Life where one of the girls dreams that she has separated from her sister that she can be independent and so she gets up and she's dancing around and they've obviously had to shoot it in such a way using sort of doubles and then there's close-ups of her um sort of next to a tree peeking around the tree yes you know that, i've seen that yes that you know does that ring a very vivid is, bell the other sister is just shoved bit t- tucked down behind the tree it's really kind of sad to see this thing and they're both obviously getting on 
at that point as well, because it's 20 years after Freaks. Yeah, they had a very sad life. And then ultimately, they went, they did a tour. Their manager dumped them in um, in a town called Charlotte, North Carolina, ran off with all the money that they'd made from the show. And they were just stranded in Charlotte, North Carolina, with no money, nothing to do. And the town really felt sorry for them and supported them, gave them a house to live in, gave them jobs in a local... Yeah, gave them jobs in a grocery store. So they lived out their final three or four years just working on the cash till in this grocery store, just working sort of back-to-back with tills. And they became really popular in the town and everyone loved them. And that's where they lived out their, their, their days. So they just got ripped off and ripped off and ripped off and exploited. Uh, it was very sad, really. It sounds like they found a little bit of peace at the end anyway, yeah, which is, which is I nice. I think so. Yeah, they did. So yeah, so I um, a few years ago, the one show was talking about them because I think they had some, some currently conjoined twins. They had a story about conjoined twins and conjoined twins being separated. So they wanted to do a sort of archive piece about some famous conjoined twins. So that's why they ended up doing a piece about the uh, Hilton sisters. So I'm not quite sure how it happened, but I ended up being their film historian to to talk about the Daisy and Violet and the film Freaks and circus freaks and freak shows in the 1930s, which was... Yeah, which was fun, I guess, a career highlight for me, for me <laughs> to sit on a beach in January in the freezing cold for an hour being filmed, talking about this stuff, trying not to shiver between between questions. I think probably, like, more than a lot of films, the cast of this would have a, a fascinating... Ba- yeah, they would all have fascinating backstories and fascinating yeah. experiences, and they're, since they're not just They did, and, and some of them... Yeah, some of them lived, you know, a long time. Well, one of my favourite characters is Johnny Eck. Yes, I always like Johnny Eck. He's amazing. And he lived to be 90 years old, which is pretty impressive. And he was a twin brother. So his brother um, was born completely able-bodied. And then Johnny Eck was born. And effectively, although he looks like he's just a half man, he does have legs. He does have the rest of his torso but it was sort of withered and very almost non-existent so that's basically tucked up inside his clothing right okay um so he that's why he looks like he's just a half person because the top half of his torso is completely whole and he's very handsome as well johnny eck Mm. um so yeah he's a really extraordinary performer uh the way he sort of runs around on his hands but yeah he lived out his days did I say he was 90? I think he was 80. Yes. Sorry. He, 80 years old. So he lived out the rest of his days with his brother. They lived together and um, seemed, yeah, sort of happy enough. He lived until the 1990s, actually, which is quite amazing. And some of them ended up, there was a place, I can't remember where it was, Florida, I think, where a lot of circus performers would go between sort of off-season. Circuses would often decamp to Florida. And I think there was a sort of place where some of these guys ended up just sort of living in communes together in places like Florida as well. But um, but yeah, they are a very interesting collection of people who, like you said, have all got fascinating stories. Yeah, the central couple, Harry and Daisy Earls, mm. they're the, the actors. So they're bro- brother and sister, but they play yeah. husband and wife. 
not weird at all. <laughs> <laughs> and they're clearly brother and sister because they look very, very similar. They're the two central little people. Mm. They're playing uh, Hans. Is it Hans? Hans and Frieda. Hans and Frieda. Yeah, they're, sp- they're sort of trying to say, like, I mean, they are German. They're, they're from Germany originally. So they're sort of, yeah, passing them off as kind of middle European. And he does occasionally rant in German as well, I think. Yeah, and again, both, I mean, he lived to be in his 80s so they had good long lives mm. these guys they were both yeah. uh, both munchkins yes uh, later on he, yeah he was in uh, the holly the lollipop guild he's one of the lollipop guild he's quite prominent <laughs> <laughs> and he did another i think they were both maybe in another one of todd browning's films the unholy three which is a lon chaney silent film about circus life and um he's in that as well so yeah, he did. He managed to do several films. But I think yeah, Freaks is probably his starring moment where he gets the most to do. Yeah, because he is essentially the protagonist. Mm. I kind of think that the film is trying to set up the clown, and I don't know who the other woman is. Her name's Venus, and then the, mm. the, the clown is called Frozo. They're the two nice able-bodied people. So most of the yes. able-bodied circus people. They're outright villains at worst or just constantly tease mm-hmm. the sideshow performers. Yeah, she's more sympathetic. Yeah, these are the, the sympathetic pair and, and they join in that final attack on the the villains, Cleopatra and Hercules. Because she's, she's trying to poison Hans to get his fortune. So they, they join in with the freaks and they help them out during that. And Hercules and Frozo get into a big fight together um and so i think they're set up as possibly being the protagonists but they're so they're just not very interesting and they don't have a lot to do and it is it is really frida and hans who are the real central performers and maybe there was more to their story in the original film perhaps they had a bit more to do i do enjoy hearing their uh, 1930s accents and lingo though you're a funny guy frozo Sometimes you panic me. Don't I know it? I panic the world because I use my noodles. I think of funny gags. I make the world laugh. With me, clowning is an art. Hey, why the hat? The head cold? Thought you and me had a date to go out. Oh, I forgot all about it. Well, I'm into this now. I got to go through with it. Well, make it snappy, will you? I'm all dialed up for the occasion. Sorry, kid. Can't do it now. We'll make it some other time, huh? Ah, uh, don't feel that way about it. I just got this idea all of a sudden. I gotta finish it. Hey, funny gag, isn't it? Yeah. I'm laughing myself sick. Frozo says to Venus, uh, you ain't so hard to look at. Give yourself a tumble. You'll make the grade. Well, it's just some great 30s lingo. Yeah. <laughs> it needs deciphering now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Frozo, who's the circus clown, he's even got sort of a 1930s physique. He's very barrel-chested. Mm. People don't really look like him so much anymore. He, he does, no. I don't know if it's a particular way they had of standing or, you know, holding themselves in the 30s. But Yeah, and I like his uh, his little act with the um, with the sledgehammer. Oh, yes. Head and he disappears into his, uh, into his coat. Yeah, it's full of gags. I mean, it is, it is essentially... There's a lot of comedy in this film, so we mm. do see the... A lot of the, the clowns' performances, and he, he has a scene where he's he's apparently taking a bath, but then he opens a door in the bottom of the bath and climbs out, and there's no water yeah. in it. And yeah, there's some, there's some quite sweet gags involving Violet and Daisy. Um, one of the two, I forget which one. I think it's Daisy is engaged to a comedian who's quite an unpleasant man. He's very he's very bad tempered, but he tells 
Violet, I think, because she's a bit more of a drinker, and she, he says, I'm tired of her lying in bed all day with your hangover. <laughs> and the, uh, later on in the film, they both get engaged, uh, and Violet gets engaged to a much more handsome and pleasant man called Mr. Rogers, I think. And as they leave, they say, you should come and visit us sometime. Oh, yeah, you should come and visit us sometime. Well, well, well. Tomorrow night's the big night, eh, Daisy? Yes, the sister's getting married. And I'm thrilled to death. She thrills at anything. Oh, Roscoe's a good kid. She's only joking. She'll like him lots after she knows him better. Oh, that reminds me. Close your eyes, Violet. Go ahead, close them. What did I do? Pinch Daisy's arm. Well, what do you know about that? I mean, that that was one of the things about the Hilton girls because they were considered to be quite attractive and obviously as they grew up, the question of how can they have boyfriends, how can they get married because of, you know, in your head you're already thinking of the impropriety mm. of the fact that, you know, how is that going to work because the other half will be watching what you're doing effectively. Yes. <laughs> and so that was always something that, that, that was something that I think they could play with a little bit there and sort of slightly risque for these uh, early, even though this is sort of pre-code, but the suggestion that they could be in any way sexual is quite was quite shocking, I think. And there's a particular moment as well. And uh, one of the questions I have is, do you have a favourite moment? Uh, so I'll say now, do you have a favourite moment? My favourite moment is is the bit where Mr Rogers kisses whichever one of the two he's engaged to and then the other one just looks yeah. really, really delighted by this. So she's obviously yeah. experiencing the whole... This is the idea that they can both experience the same thing together. Yes, that she's getting the same rush of endorphins yes. through the bloodstream. Yeah, and that's a that lovely amazing? moment, just sort of this, this really sort of sensual grin blossoms across her face as the other one's getting the kiss and yeah that's a really nice moment no it is good i think my favorite bit again it's just a little sort of side bit of business but um watching prince randy and uh light a cigarette yes that's is, p- uh, part of his act i think that he yeah, would do the, do the living torso tests. lighting a cigarette yes he had no it. arms and legs he was he was a head yeah. and a torso essentially but he could do all these things and i don't think we ever hear him speak either he's just on camera quite a lot but he doesn't ever really talk. But um, he's got this sort of amazing presence. Every time he's on screen, I just find it really interesting. Yeah, he's he's one of the old. He's in his sixties, I think. In this, I think he he died not long after yes. this. Yeah, and he'd had an act. He'd, he'd been touring around America for quite a while as Prince Randian, um, allegedly the child of 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 slaves in India, brought over from uh, from Guyana to to. America to to do the to do the circuit, but yeah, he's um, it's just amazing to watch. But again, a bit like Johnny X, every time he's on screen, I just love watching what he's doing as well. So, do you remember when you first saw it and how you felt about it when you first saw it? I came to this film relatively late. I think I don't think I saw it until I bought the DVD when it finally got released on DVD, probably more than fifteen years ago. Because I remember where I was when I watched it, and it was before I moved house. So maybe 16, 17 years ago, when it was released on DVD, and there was a really good documentary on there about the making of it as well. So um, that was the first time I'd actually seen it. I'd heard of the film and read about it in books and things, but I think it wasn't that easy to see um, before that. So so yeah, so relatively recently, I suppose, as, I, as an adult. If I'd seen this when I was young, it would have made 
quite a vivid impression, I'm sure. It's one of the ones I saw, and this is something I, I, I talked about, because we, we've both been guests on GoonPod, and this is, this mm. is uh, something I talked about at length on GoonPod, was uh, the fact that in the early 90s I picked up from the library a book called uh, Fantastic Cinema by uh, Peter Nichols. Sorry, it's on my shelf, so I was just, <laughs> I was just checking. And that... Uh, ran through all cinema with a with a fantastical element. So Freaks counts because of the fact that somebody gets turned into a chicken at the end. Otherwise, it's not really a fantastical film in that sense. That book absolutely fascinated me, and all the films in there, as you know, the ones that really stood out, I really wanted to see. Uh, so I I would hunt through the TV listings every week and have my blank video cassette at the ready to add to my collections of films from fantastic cinema. So this was this was shown late at night on either BBC Two or Channel Four during the early nineties. And yeah, I think seeing something with those nineteen thirties production values, which are off yeah, often denote quite safe cinema, but the actual film itself is quite because it employs all these unusual looking people, it's it's quite it's quite a I don't know, strange is the wrong word, but it's it's surreal in its yeah. own way of having a film from that period. It still feels quite transgressive. Yes, I think, I think that's the word, yeah. Because it's not the only film. There are other movies that have used people with real-life deformities of some sort yeah, in, in a sort of horror sense. There's, um, oh, what's his name, Rondo Hatton. Do you know Rondo Hatton? I don't know the name. Um, he was an actor, sort of post-war in a lot of um, B-movie horror films and film noirs and things. And he had, um, I'm going to get it wrong now. Let me see if I can Google it so I pronounce it correctly. Um, He had something called acromegaly, acromegaly, I don't know how you pronounce it. But basically kind of what the elephant man was known to have. So he had this sort of deformed growth in his face and he has this acromegalic features um which made him very popular for he just had a career in horror movies because he had this extraordinary face um which now we would think oh that's a terrible exploitation of a guy just because of the um because of what he had but at the time it was a you know it was the only way he could get work as an actor i suppose but yeah so it's not uncommon i suppose freaks isn't the only time that that actors with genuine deformities have been used and that element has been played up for a kind of horror effect. There's a really notorious film called The Sentinel by Michael Winner. I was going to mention The Sentinel by Michael Winner. I haven't watched it that far just because I got bored during the film and didn't get to the end, but I've I've certainly heard about it. Oh, you you can't stop before the end, my goodness. (laughs) I mean, it's all kinds of nuts, the ending of that film. But yeah, that uses real life um, people with physical deformities in a very much in a horror context. Quite controversial, I would say. Particularly for the like the nineteen seventies when yeah, forty years later earlier they were yes. having a film that was as compassionate and humanizing as this, and then you know, yeah. the nineteen seventies. Uh, I mean, Michael Winner, but yeah, he's they're playing the hordes of hell. I think if I'm remembering mm-hmm. that correctly. Yeah, Which is, uh... it's pretty extraordinary, but um, and but yeah, it all goes back to to freaks in some way. 
Is there a bit or a, a moment or an element of the film you could do without? This is something I, I ask about all the films and you don't have to have an answer because... Well, I mean, really, I would say no because they've already taken all those bits out. I would like those bits back rather than to take any more away. That's that's uh, <laughs> my answer as well. I could do without. Yeah. I could do without I mean, the it's, gaps. It's such a tightly held together film. Um, I mean, it's amazing that it's still coherent given that they didn't just lop 30 minutes off the end. Like There are bits taken from all the way through. So the fact that it still works and still has a really tight narrative, I think is sort of a tri- tribute to the editor who was tasked with having to chop all these bits out. But yeah, there's, certain, there's certainly nothing in here that I would want to take away as well. Mm. No, that that would be my answer, yes. Just, yeah. uh, just I, I would take away the missing... I would take away the gaps where there should be things and replace the things. Yeah. Um, a note that I made while I was watching it actually was that the story about a dwarf performer thinking he's having some kind of romantic relationship with one of the other, you know, supposedly beautiful performer. It's used in Psychoville as well. The same. They they used that. This is true. Oh yeah, I love Psychoville. But it's uh, not a freak show so much as uh, it's um, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's a pantomime. Yeah, and he's in love with the actress playing Snow White, mm-hmm. but um, ultimately gets rejected by her and yeah doesn't end well for him <laughs> they're connoisseurs of that sort of this end of film so it would be a very deliberate nod i would say i would imagine freaks has uh, loomed large in the uh, for all of the league of gentlemen yes over the years I and mean, anything like this is catnip to those guys i would imagine but yeah i suppose any any sort of films or tv shows that have got that sort of retro nostalgia for this period are going to be borrowing from freaks obviously the the main example is probably this, is the second or third series of American Horror Story, which is called Freak Show, I think. And it's all about, it's they've got characters playing um, versions of these characters. There's a conjoined twin where she's actually just got two heads. Um, there's a version of Schlitzy, the pinhead. There's a few, you know, quite a few of the characters that we see in Freaks are recreated in American Horror Story for that series. Right. So that's di- that's directly referencing Freaks. But I think it's set a bit later. I think it's set in the 40s or 50s, maybe. But, um, yeah, that's quite interesting. And I would imagine quite a few younger audience members are going to come to that show with no previous knowledge of the film Freaks. But if you know Freaks, when you see that, it's all just sort of clicks into place. Yeah, I imagine this hasn't been shown on television recently. It's, it's, no. it's more one of the things that they would have stopped showing in the 90s. Yeah, which is a shame because it's not exploitative, I would argue. I mean, I suppose you could equally argue that it is, but it's certainly... It's, it's humanising. Yeah, it's on the side of of these performers. They're not being exploited for for who they are in the way, in the sense that they were in the freak shows themselves. I suppose the the, the scene we should talk about, which is sort of the central scene and is probably the, the most remembered scene other than the finale, is the wedding scene mm. with the famous chant. Yes. Was it uh, Google Gobble, one of us? Yes. Although the part <laughs> that people tend to... Because I think it's often quite a misunderstood scene because the chant is Google Gobble, we accept you, one of us, but people oh, often yeah. will miss out the "we accept you" part. So, it, are they like I did? Yes, <laughs> it's, it's the part that's generally forgotten. We'll make her one of us, a loving cup, a loving cup. We accept. 
accept a one of us. We accept a one of us. Gooba gobble, gooba gobble. We accept her, we accept her. Gooba gobble, gooba gobble. One of us, one of us. Gooba gobble. They're going to make you one of them. My peacock. It's actually a sort of celebration. They're getting, you know, one of the sideshow performers has married this beautiful, able-bodied performer, and they're all celebrating and they're they're welcoming her into their into their family. So it's not sinister. Yeah, and I think it's often seen as being sinister. I think it's often. I I think sort of the goobal garble bit is. Yeah. (laughs) Is possibly. I think there's a bit of sarcasm in it, maybe. But not wholly. I think they don't like her particularly because she's not a nice person. They all know she's not a nice person. They know no. that she's. Although she gives it, a, she gives herself away, doesn't she? She, she does. She, she can't she, take her booze. She reacts very badly to being welcomed into the group, <laughs> which actually, and you've seen their life in this circus, and you think they actually do seem like a really nice bunch of people to hang around with, and mm. you'd think, you know. I think most of us would find it quite heartwarming to be accepted by, by that community. Yeah. But she doesn't react well, and she's absolutely horrified by it. But yes, it's a fascinating scene because I think it can be read in a number of ways, and depending on how sort of how you're already d- disposed towards the film, is is how you read that because there's yeah. the slight ambigu- ambiguity. I think with the Google Gobble line, which c- you could read as being utterly dripping with sarcasm. So it could come across as quite mocking. Yeah. But I think with the We Accept You, it's not. I think they are. And they're passing around the loving cup and they're all taking drinks. So they are, uh, even if they're taking the mick a little bit, I think they are genuinely trying to accept her into their group. It's Again, it's just the, the film is so well directed and vis- visually there are just so many interesting visuals. And Todd Browning tends to get a lot of criticism that he was not a visual director. I think that's primarily because Dracula is viewed as being a bit flat uh, because it's very stagey, uh, when you, especially when you compare it with the Spanish Dracula. 
which was shot on the same sets, but looks absolutely stunning in comparison. But I think it's unfair to judge Todd Browning just on the strength of Dracula because he was a very visual storyteller because he'd done tons of silent movies anyway. But then in this film, there's a lot of really striking visuals as well, and it's really well shot. And maybe he, maybe that's partly because it's a year after Dracula and he took that criticism and decided he was going to do something about it. And also, of course, they, when directors had to switch from silent to sound, they were quite hamstrung by the technology. Suddenly the cameras were much bigger and heavier. Yes. The sound equipment was a nightmare. And the studio facilities had to, everything had to be soundproof. And suddenly shooting became a lot more constricted than it would have been before. And so maybe Dracula, that's one of the reasons why it's a bit flat. But here, he seems to have grabbed the ball by the horns and, and made it really visual. I think so. And particularly, like, almost all of it takes place within a very small area as well. It doesn't really go, other than, again, that final scene with the with the attack in the mud and the rain. Yeah, it's all studio bound. I don't think there's a single location shot in the whole film. Maybe that helped, you know, obviously the lighting and, and you had a lot of control over it how it looked but yeah i i think freaks is is a really stunning looking movie i think so yeah it's very evocative mm. and and i've just got a soft spot in general for anything to do with the old sort of glory days of well i don't know if glory days is the right word but the old time sort of circuses i find all that stuff fascinating and i love reading books about circus performers and histories of circuses and all this kind of stuff i just find really really um, fascinating i really obviously which is probably why I really enjoyed the recent uh, Nightmare Alley, which has has similar has its own version of the the sideshow. Um, some of whom I think are based on characters from this movie, actually. So um, yeah, I just I love all that stuff, which is perhaps why I've got such a soft spot for freaks. Doing very thorough research, I've copied some um, copy copy and pasted some quotes from critics off of Wikipedia. I'm not going to name the critics, probably. But I think it's interesting that even fairly modern reviews of the film are still finding it horrifying. Mm. So this is from Wikipedia. Nonetheless, the film has still been noted for its stark horror imagery in the 21st century. A BBC writer, name redacted by me, observed in 2002... It's easy to see why reactions to the film have been so strong. It's a catalogue of the abnormal, the bizarre and the grotesque that's still as unsettling today as it was 70 years ago. Mm, I don't really agree. That's not a review from the 30s, that's a review from from 20 years ago. Considering it's a film, by and large, apart from the very, very end, about a group of generally rather sweet disabled people and unusual looking people involved in a drama it's not the horror film that everyone is projecting it to be until that very final moment when the fate of the trapeze artist is revealed until that point it's quite a sweet and fairly light melodrama i will name these critics film critic mark kermode awarded the film Four out of five stars in a 2015 review, noting that today Browning's sympathies are clear. If there are freaks on display here, they are not the versatile performers to whom the title seems to allude. Film theorist and critic Andrew Saris echoed the sentiment proclaiming freaks one of the most compassionate films ever, which I think is much nearer the mark for people actually watching the film for what it is and not coming to it as a 
this really notorious and horrifying, terrifying, weird horror film. It's a melodrama with quite a lot of gags, which happens to star people who look different from most other people. Speaking of not watching the film properly, uh, here's another quote from uh, the Wikipedia article on Freaks. And again, I won't name the, the person who I'm quoting, but this is a historian. Uh, And she suggests that the film's conclusion, in which the circus performers mutilate Cleopatra whilst chanting one of us, is reinforcing the freak's social currency. She says, It is interesting that the statement that reads as one of inclusion is often cited as one that embodies the horror in the film. What does it mean to be one of us? The chilling horror of the one of us chant reveals why the freak show persists. Well... That's all very well, but that actually doesn't happen in the film. The only point at which they chant one of us is at the wedding scene when they're passing around the loving cup and they're saying, we accept you, one of us. The scene which she mentioned, and this is a historian, this is a professional historian, in which they mutilate Cleopatra. We don't see it. That part of the film's being cut and discarded. That happens in silence. They're not chanting at that point. They don't... This isn't an on, This isn't a recurring thing, this one of us chant. So this chilling horror is all existing within her mind, this film that she's imagined she's seen. But Hans, my Liebchen, you have not been listening to what I have been saying. Hans, yes, Frida. You have not been listening to me. Yes, I have, Frida, I have. Then what was I saying? You were saying, you were saying, what were you saying? Was saying, tonight you must not smoke such a big cigar. Your voice was very bad at tonight's show. Please, Frida, don't tell me what I do. When I want a cigar, I smoke a cigar. I want no orders from a woman. A hunt. This is the first time since we have been engaged you have spoken to me, so why is it? Oh, Frigion, I'm sorry. I... Ah, here's that coffee. Baby. Five lumps from sugar in each. Four. There's there's some of the uh, contemporary ones. Anyone who considers this entertainment should be placed in the pathological ward in some hospital. Mm-hmm. Uh, and someone in the Kansas City Star wrote, there is no excuse for this picture. It took a weak mind to produce and it takes a strong, strong stomach to look at. But you imagine most of these reviewers were probably not the kind of people who went to sideshows and circuses. Because, the, you know, those would have been the people of the sort of more of the Midwest, the the poorer you know, not the middle-class professionals who write for newspapers. The people who go to the freak shows and go to the side shows and go to the circus would have not have found it as horrifying as these middle-class um, people who'd much rather be watching something serious. Yes, they'd rather be watching men with brill-creamed hair. Everyone yeah, looking I mean, immaculate. The, the, the tone of the reviews is very similar to if you read sort of... Um, read reviews of British sex comedies of the 1970s and they're equally dismissive and say, you know, you must be stupid if you want to watch this and all this. You know, they're very uh, basically just offensive to the <laughs> to the audience and yet those films were the biggest box office earners at the time. So, you know, people were watching them 
but the kind of people who write reviews were not the necessarily the intended audience and i think that's possibly the same with freaks but it it did damage Todd browning's career the the outcry and the critical drubbing and the all the cutting and everything he didn't make he really his career really slowed down after this one considering he'd made more than 50 movies before freaks wow he then only made a short handful and then retired basically so it did kind of did have a big impact on his career but not in a way that you know not how we think it should have gone which is a shame yes i think similar to michael powell and peeping tom yeah that people were just so outraged and horrified and i think also the reviews remind me of the peeping tom reviews and it's it's Mm. a very different film and very different tone uh but it's that still that's somewhat pearl clutching outrage yeah, that did torpedo the career of the uh, director. Yeah, and so like I said, Freaks um, wasn't screened in the UK. So it was banned by the British Board of Film Censors, and um, it wasn't until the 1960s when a, a an independent distributor, sort of and a cinema owner called Anthony Balch, who was a big film fan himself, and he ran a cinema in London. And so he uh, he was the one who wanted to screen Freaks. And so he applied, he put it through the BBFC again. So although we say the film was banned for 30 years, I think it's more likely that just nobody else tried yes. to put it through. Because the BBFC, they give something a certificate and then they don't just review it every few years mm. and say, oh, we're not going to ban this anymore. It takes somebody else to submit it before they review something. Yes, and presumably if it was banned in the first place, no one saw it, and then there'd be no, you know, very yeah. few people with any... So it's thanks to Anthony Balch, he really rescued Freaks and brought it back to the to the UK and showed it at his, his cinema in the 60s. And then he went on to make some very interesting films himself. He did some collaborations with William Burroughs, which are really amazing to watch. Um, really sort of experimental and trippy um stuff and then he made a couple of feature films as well but um yeah he anthony balch was a was an interesting character so it's he also did the um oh, what's that film Haxan, the that really weird old silent film about witches he did a new version of that with a, a commentary by william burroughs and got that screened in the 60s as well so yeah, so he's an interesting little extra person who's connected to this film through through the efforts that he made to actually get it seen. I'll read one final uh, review. Oh, this is yeah. from 2009. This is a critic who proclaimed that Freaks contains some of the most terrifying scenes in film history. <laughs> uh, which I, I beg to differ. It really yeah. doesn't at all. Oh, again, that end sequence is... It's intense. Very horrifying to watch, but I mean, yeah... Depends on your definition of scary, I suppose. Yeah, I mean that. I think there are plenty of films and people getting chased and murdered. Mm. But actually, watching it this time, this is the first time I had ever seen the very, very, very end scene, which was one oh. tacked on later. Yeah, uh, set in happy ending. Little happy ending set in Hans's mansion, and he's reunited with Frida and Venus and Frozo. Come, they bring her to him, and and it's it all has a different film quality to it, and it's. Yeah, I'd never seen that before, and it doesn't add anything. Possibly not even shot by Todd Browning, I I don't think so, no. Yeah. So according, one of the things that was cut out, I think, was the fact that Hercules, the strongman, he gets castrated as well, 
Um, and I think there's a reference to that in part of what got cut out that you see her turned into this kind of chicken lady and he has been he is in another booth singing like a castrato oh, apparently okay. at the end he's singing singing soprano so he's still in the act but he's now got a very high singing voice <laughs> yes because we assume he's just been killed from you know from the cut version no it's uh, you know for a big strong man like him it was worse than death right well it's nearly time to wrap up i'll ask you one final mm. question um, yes please who wins your award for person in front of the camera um I, I probably Johnny Eck. I've always got a soft spot for Johnny Eck. Yeah, he's not one of the main characters. He doesn't really have anything to do with the plot, but he's so good looking. Like he's such a handsome guy. He could have been um, a proper kind of matinee idol under different circumstances, perhaps. But he's just really charismatic, and every time he's on screen, you can't help but watch him. So I'll say Johnny Eck. I'd have liked to have seen like Johnny Eck swashbuckling films, and yeah, can he, you he imagine? Would have been great in something like that. He could have. He should have been offered work as an actor, and could have done loads. Of things. He did actually appear in a couple of Tarzan films, mm. but primarily just in costumes, and you know, never with his own face on show, which is a shame. Um, because I, yeah, I think he could have, he could have done action movies. He could have played a, I don't know, detective. I mean, there's all kinds of things he could have done. Um, he had an act, I think, with his brother, where it was like a human, a man being cut in half act that he would do, and then the legs would get up and run around, and the top half would, would get off and run around, you know. Because um, I think they had a, they would have a dwarf in a pair of trousers made to look like the lower half of somebody. So this member of the audience would get up and then be cut in half. And I think his brother would play the member of the audience who would walk up to the stage, and then there'd be a switch. So then when he gets cut in half, then the two halves would get up and run around the stage. That was, I think, that was their act, which would have been fun to see <laughs> to see that. But yeah, I'd like to have seen more movies with Johnny Eck. Definitely. Yeah, it would been great. I think uh, I think my favourite watching this time is Daisy Earls playing Frida. Mm. I think she yeah. she does a very good job of just being quietly heartbroken. Mm. She never she doesn't row with her husband. She doesn't like scream and yell and throw things. She's just quietly dignified and just utterly heartbroken you see all these shots of her watching them flirting ridiculously mm. you know on the other side of the the table and things and she's just sitting and watching them and just looking extremely sad and she's sort of the yeah. the emotional heart of the film well her, yeah she gets to do some good acting mm, her husband's off you know with his folly being mm-hmm. being led astray by this horrible trapeze artist and she's yeah. her heart is quietly breaking Hmm. And on that note, it's a rather sombre note. (laughs) Thank you, Dr. Adrian Smith, for coming on to to the second episode of Cardboard Cinema Club. Um, Is there anything you'd like to plug? Uh, I suppose just my other podcasts. Um, I do one that's an academic cult film podcast called Second Features. And we have a different guest academic on every time. And we talk about a cult movie and we talk about how that connects to their research and we've done hammer films and horror films and sexploitation films and all kinds of stuff so that's quite fun and then i also have an italian cult film podcast called wild wild podcast so we're currently in polizia teschi season so we're doing 70s cop thrillers which are uh, always 
good fun. So, yeah, check me out uh, if you like the sound of those. You'd find them on all the all the podcast things. Well, thank you for listening to Cardboard Cinema Club, a RetroTube production, because I still haven't got around to making a separate Twitter account yet. RetroTube, that's my parallel archive television podcast. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find me plus my RetroTube co-host Heather on Twitter at Retro underscore Tube or email on RetroTubePodcast at gmail.com. I'll be back again in a week or two with another exciting guest and another exciting film. Until then, cheerio! Cheerio!